The following audio is from Life Baptist Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. For more information about our church, please visit lifebaptistchurch.com. We begin this morning with three relational statements. Statement number one, humanity was created for relationship with God. Our sins separated us from that relationship. Jesus offers to reconcile the relationship. Statement number two, Christianity is not about religion. It's about relationship. Statement number three, everything God desires to do in and through your life, he will accomplish out of the overflow of your relationship with him. Relationship, relationship, relationship. At life, we ring the relationship bell often. Through teaching and through discipleship, we are constantly leading people back to a right relationship with God, intimacy with Christ, the importance of knowing Christ and making him known. And it is not an attempt on our side to make Christianity more palatable or more relevant or or more appealing, but rather it is a sincere desire on our side to teach the essence of Christ's message that leads to human flourishing. What I've discovered over the years is a lot of times people will agree with the idea without fully understanding the concept. So we need to go past just giving the right statements, and we need to dig deeper. We need to ask more difficult questions. Questions like, what does it mean to have relationship with God? What holds the relationship together? What does it mean to live out of the overflow of our relationship with God? How should we act within this relationship? To live in relationship with Christ requires that we understand, at least at some level, the basics of relationship with Christ. So today is week three in our message series called The Anatomy of Relationship. And we're studying what it means to be in right relationship with God. For five weeks, we are immersing ourselves in one of the key relationship texts of the New Testament. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. And on each of these five weeks, we're coming back to the exact same group of verses, and we are looking at them from a different angle. We want to see all the facets of relationship as defined within this text. So on week one, it was about the goal of relationship. What are we trying to achieve? We found that the goal is to know Christ. That's important because the goal we set is often the target we hit. Week two was about the motivation of relationship. Why are we in the relationship at all? We found that our motivation when entering relationship may unintentionally determine the extent of that relationship. God uses our circumstances to get our attention, but the gospel must become our motivation. Week three is about the nature of relationship. What defines our relationship with God? It is the nature of a relationship that sets the guidelines and the parameters and the boundaries for that relationship. It's the nature of the relationship that helps us understand how are we to act, what are we to do in that relationship. So, for example, a boss-employee relationship is defined by work. A husband-wife relationship is defined by marriage. A parent-child relationship is defined by family roles and responsibilities. We understand that different relational contexts are defined by different relational parameters. So a person might be witty and goofy and joking around when they're hanging out with their best friend, but they might be quiet and reserved when they're standing in front of their boss. 
And it's not that they're being fake in one context or another. It is that they understand that our interactions change based on the nature of the relationship that we are around at that time. With that as the backdrop, what is the nature of our relationship with God? If we don't understand that from a biblical perspective, our default position is usually to be awkward and indebted and reverent and many times to live in a state of fear. We're going to see that today. So I invite you to go with me in your Bibles if you're not already there. Philippians chapter number 3 will be in verses 7 through 11 once again. Philippians 3, 7 through 11. I'm speaking this morning on the subject, the nature of relationship. So this morning, I'm not going to read the text first. Rather, we're going to pray and we're going to jump into things from there. Also, I've now been told in three services today that I am talking really, really fast. And the reason I'm doing that is because I got about 17 pages of notes I crammed into 10 to make sure that we are out sometime before about 5 p.m. today. So uh, that being said, um, you have to take a lot of notes, and it might be because I'm making a lot of connections that it might be really good this next week to go back and watch the video to be able to see all the pieces that might have been missed along the way. So let's go ahead and start with prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would do an amazing thing in this service. I've had person after person coming out and saying that they never understood what the nature of the relationship was all about, and that this morning things have been clarified. I pray, God, you would do the same thing in this service. Lord, we are needing you to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was 14 or 15 years old, I was given the opportunity to do some work at my pastor's house. Now, my pastor lived on a small island on the outskirts of Savannah, Georgia. Prior to becoming a pastor, he was in real estate, made a lot of money in real estate, and he owned a couple of islands right off the coast of Georgia. So one day, the youth pastor of the church comes to me and he says, Paul, would you be interested in a job that pays seven bucks an hour? Now, remember, I was like 14 or 15 years old, and back then, seven bucks an hour sounded like I hit the lottery. So I agreed before finding out the details of what the job was all about. So once I understood the details, I understood why it was seven bucks an hour. Here's what I was doing. In 95-degree weather with 95% humidity, my job was to go through and to fill sandbags, 60-pound sandbags, load them on my shoulder, and sludge through mud up to my knees with biting insects to build a bulkhead around the entire island in order to keep erosion away. That was a blessing of a job right there. So I noticed along the way that the pastor's wife, she would come out occasionally and she would say, "Um, hey, would you all like something to drink? That was very nice of her. There was a couple of times that the pastor came home from work, went out and he inspected the work and he said, that's a good job. Thank you. Did you know he never invited me in his house for a meal? He never said, Paul, why don't you just come in, kick back, go get you a shower, relax a little bit, grab some sweet tea while you're at it. Now, I could be offended by that if I did not understand the nature of the relationship. In that moment, it was not friend to friend. It was not pastor to parishioner. It was boss to employee. He was not paying me to sit on his back porch and to sip sweet tea. He was paying me to work. So that idea helps set up our first key truth for the morning. The nature of the relationship determines our conduct within the relationship. The nature of the relationship determines our conduct within the relationship. 
What is the nature of our relationship with God? How are we supposed to act? What are we supposed to do? For that matter, what are we not supposed to do? Are we supposed to speak in hushed tones? Are we to cower under the wrath of God? Um, Are we to high-five Jesus like we've been old friends? I mean, exactly how are we supposed to act within our relationship with God? Because the nature of the relationship determines our conduct within the relationship. Based on verses 1 through 7 out of Philippians chapter 3, we know that the nature of Paul's relationship with God was not religion, was not family heritage, was not personal righteousness, was not individual devotion, individual zeal, or anything like that. We know that because he says he has given all of those things up for the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Now, his language there matches other New Testament language. And that is, Christians are often described as those who know God, those who know Christ. Here's what Jesus said, John chapter 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. It was Jesus who defined eternal life, John 17, 3, as knowing God. It's found in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, where it says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. So salvation involves a personal, relational knowledge of Christ. That same idea for knowing Christ, the, the Greek word there is gnosis. The Hebrew equivalent is a word, yada. It also means to know. Yada was often used of an intimate knowledge, a union, or a love bond. It was sometimes a word that was used as a euphemism for sex between a husband and a wife. For example, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, it said, Adam knew Eve. The word there is yada. We find in Genesis chapter 4, verse 17, it says, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore a son named Enoch. So Yada also described God's intimate love bond with the nation of Israel. He says in Amos 3.2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Here's my point. In the Old Testament, as well as in the New Testament, To know someone spoke of a loving, personal, intimate knowledge of that individual. This is the word that the Apostle Paul is using when he's saying, I have given up all of these other things so that I may know Christ. Oh, that I may know him, that I may be found in him. It's the word love. So love defines the relationship with God. Now, Paul elaborates upon that idea with a series of progressive phrases. He says in the text, in verses 8 and 9, you can read along with me. He says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So take note of the word knowing. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Take note of the word gain. Then it says in verse 9, and may be found in him. Take note of the idea, found in If you were to bring together each of those three relational excerpts, here's what it would basically say. I want to know Christ intimately, gain Christ personally, and be found in Christ completely. What he just described is the exact same progression that a bride goes through when she gets married. 
Here's what I mean. The bride wants to know the groom intimately. The bride wants to gain the groom personally. He's no longer available to everybody else. He's off the market. He's now taken. Also, she wants to be found in him or identified with him. When married, her last name often gives way to his last name. That's the reason why at the end of a wedding ceremony, the pastor or whoever's officiating says, I would like to now announce to you or talk to you about Mr. and Mrs. Sam Smith. It is now her identity is seen in his It is the same exact thing for you and I. We are the bride of Christ if you are a follower of Christ. And in that, we go through the same progression. We want to know Christ. We want to gain Christ. We want to be found in Christ. Now, he takes it a little bit further than that. Not only does he want to know Christ and gain Christ and be found in Christ, but he wants to complete relationship. But here's the problem. Sinful people cannot have a relationship with the holy God. The problem is sin. There's a sin barrier. That's the reason why Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. That's why Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's why 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. Why? There's a sin barrier. The righteous being him, for the unrighteous being us. And then it says, So that he might bring us close to God. This is a beautiful concept here. The only way a sinful person can be brought close to God, to have relationship with God, to know God, to love God, is because someone has dealt with that sin barrier. The someone is Jesus. He's basically, in this passage, it is Jesus who suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. So the Apostle Paul is telling us that his relationship with God is no longer based on his righteousness derived from the law, but rather that which is through faith in Christ, verse number 9. So let that, that, that thought just kind of sit in your mind for a moment. True fellowship with God, the ability to be brought near to God, To know God, to love God, to be in intimate relationship with God is only made possible by the righteousness of Christ. Now, if you track with me for a few more minutes, it will experience a level of freedom in your life that you will look back one day and say, how have I missed that for so long? Your relationship with God is not based on your righteousness. It is based on the righteousness of Christ. Because of what he did for you on the cross, you are now completely accepted, completely secure, completely found in him. You are no longer lost. You have now been found by Christ. Whenever he paid your sin debt and you received his gift of salvation by grace through faith, listen, there is nothing that you could ever do that would make God love you more And there is nothing that you could ever do that would make God love you less. You are secure and found in him. Listen to this. This is is mind-boggling to me. We're talking about the nature of the relationship. And here's what happened in that moment. The nature of our relationship prior to Christ. Our relationship with God. Do you know what it was defined by? Wrath. 
Because of our sin, here's what Ephesians 2, 3 through 5 says. Among whom you once lived in the passions of the flesh and were by nature children of wrath. But then it goes on from there and it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love, here's that word love again, by which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So now the nature of our relationship prior to Christ is it was a nature that was defined by wrath because of our sin. After Christ, it is a nature that is now defined by love because of his righteousness. Not because of what we did. Not because of what we brought to the table. Not because we were good or moral or religious or we did things right. But rather, the Apostle Paul is saying, when I trusted in all of that stuff to make me right with God, it took me further away. He's now saying, I consider that to be rubbish, to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing, of loving, of intimate personal knowledge. And he's saying, and it's not based on my righteousness derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ. Those two pieces now define the relationship. The word no, personal, intimate, loving knowledge, and the righteousness of Christ. That's the reason we are now in this relationship, and that's the nature of our relationship with him. The realization the Apostle Paul came to is the one that every single believer needs to come to. And that is, he's saying in this text, for all my life, I had trusted in my righteousness to make me right with God. I tried to overcome the sin barrier myself. I tried to deal with it through religion and deal with it through obedience to the law and deal with it because of my family heritage. But now he's saying, because of what Jesus did for me, when he found me on the Damascus road, I looked at him and his righteousness revealed my sinfulness. I now understood it's not what I brought, but rather who he is. So he's saying, I now have righteousness, not of my own, but that which through faith in Christ. That sets up our second key truth. Our relationship with God is defined by love and made possible only, only by the righteousness of Christ. If we miss that defining concept, we will spend the rest of our lives trying to hold the relationship together based on our effort. We will view our acceptance through the lens of our performance. We assume that God accepts us and he loves us because we do what is good and right. And when we do what is wrong, then God is mad with us and he is rejecting us. That is not true. If we miss the nature of the relationship, we will begin to make false assumptions about the relationship. And we do it innocently and we do it logically. Here's what people know about the nature of the relationship if they don't see it in scripture. Here's what they know. They know he's holy and they mess up. They know that we sin, he doesn't sin. They know that for him, he found us when we were still in rebellion. He forgave us when he didn't have to. And he offers us this incredible gift of eternal life. And based upon that knowledge, they always feel awkward and indebted and reverent within the relationship. 
The person feels awkward because they're like, I'm a screw up before perfection. They feel indebted because he paid the ultimate price that they could not pay. They have a deep reverence out of respect for who he is. And somebody might say, is that necessarily a bad thing? Well, part of it's good, but here's the way in which it becomes bad. What does an awkward, indebted, reverent person do in a relationship? Here's what they do. They just try not to mess up anymore. They try to repay the debt by doing something. And they try to keep a certain distance based on respect for the person they're in a relationship with. Does that sound even close to maybe how you've approached God before? (laughs) Have you ever noticed Whenever you got strung together, good, solid, week and a half, two weeks of quiet time, you're walking with Jesus, man. I mean, the music is pumping on the way to work in the morning. It's like a loving relationship. Every morning you wake up, and you're like, good morning, Jesus, I'm here. And you're excited to spend time with him because you feel like I'm doing the right thing. And then you say something when that person cuts you off in traffic that you know you shouldn't say. And then you get to work, and you go off on somebody at work. And then you, you, you know that you kind of shaded the truth a little bit with this other person. And God begins to bring conviction about those areas of sin. And then the next day, you're like, I'll try to get to my quiet time tonight. Maybe I'll try tomorrow. And we kind of distance ourselves from God instead of sitting with him. Do you know the reason we do that? Because we are viewing the relationship through the lens of our performance. We feel as though every time I do something good, God wants to be with me. Every time I do something bad, he doesn't want to be with me. He's ashamed of me. He's mad with me. But when we understand the nature of the relationship is a defined by love, and we understand that the only reason we're there is because of the righteousness of Christ, it frees us up to simply be with him. That means on the days that you really mess up, God is just as excited to be with you as he was before. The days that you were really, really good, he's just as excited to be with you as on the days you messed up. It's not like he looked down the corridor of time and like, I'm going to be able to spend time with them on July 13th, on September 19th, on October the 3rd, because those are the only days they got their junk together. But rather he's saying, you've been brought into this love relationship so that you can know him, deep, personal, intimate knowledge, that you can have fellowship with him, that you can be found in him, that you can be identified with him and it's not based on your performance it's based on the righteousness of Christ that's why it's exciting for us this morning this thought came to mind the gospel is scandalous in the face of religion and I specifically chose that word because the gospel is so radically different that it seems offensive inciting moral outrage by those who want to hold on to their own self-effort. Whenever you tell someone there's nothing that you could do to make God love you more, but they're holding on to their self-righteousness, they will get mad with you. Or the other side of that is they will get freed up when they understand that it is the relationship based on the righteousness of Christ and not on them. It is only when we know the nature of our relationship with Christ that we can actually experience boldness as believers. The only way that we can come boldly before the throne of grace, Hebrews 4.16 
is because we know that our relationship is not based on our righteousness, it's based on his. The only way that I can stand up and proclaim the kingdom of God and teach Jesus with all boldness, Acts chapter 28 verse 31, is because I recognize it's not the gospel of works, it's the gospel of grace. The only reason why you and I can live the abundant Christian life is because Ephesians chapter 3 verse 12 tells believers that we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Christ. People who think that their relationship is contingent upon their performance will live anemic, timid Christian lives. Why? Because every time they mess up, They feel like God doesn't want me with him right now. Every time they do well, hey, Jesus, I'm right here. You know the reason we did that? Pride. So whenever we draw near because we thought we did well, it's pride that is motivating us, which that does not help your relationship with God. And every time you draw away because you feel like your performance has let God down, you miss the grace that he has bestowed upon you. It's only in understanding the nature of this relationship that we can actually begin to understand the love passages again. Here's what John 3:16, most famous verse in the Bible says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Romans 5:8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John 15, verse 8, greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. And one of my favorites, Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from what? The love of God. The reason that's so important is because it is love that now defines this relationship. It's love as to why he came. It's love as to why he died. It's only when we understand the nature of the relationship that the freedom passages of Scripture now make more sense. Jesus said in John 8, 36, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. If you think you're holding the relationship together based on your righteousness, You will never be free. You're always trying to do something more to make sure you're okay with God. Have you ever noticed, and this happened to me for years and years before the Christ life opened up in my eyes. I would spend 30 minutes with God reading the word, and this spirit of guilt would come up inside and said, it could have been 45. I would pray for 30 minutes or 45 minutes, And this thought came to mind, you could have prayed for an hour. I would be serving in three or four places. You could be serving in five or six. I would give 10%. You could give 15%. Did you know that you will never be able to stop that voice, the condemning voice inside that says, you could do just a little bit more. But here's what Jesus has done for us. He has removed us from that rat race and said, it's not about what you do. It's about what he has done. Therefore, you get a chance to just love him because you're in an intimate relationship with him. You can serve him not because you feel like you are made right because of this, but because 
because you love him. You can spend time with him. You can worship him. You can enjoy the freedom of Christ. It's not contingent upon you getting it all right. It's contingent upon what he's done for you. And when people get that, when they get freed up in that, they sing louder. They shout more. They get more excited. You don't have to beg them to read their Bible because they're like, the one who died for me has given me a chance to get to know him. And I open his word. It's God's revelation of himself to me. So as I read, I get to know him. He gives me a chance to pray as I share my heart with him. He's not saying you got to pray in order to be right. He's saying you get to pray because you are right with me. And when those things sink in, it changes things. But as long as we think, I got to be the one to hold it together, you go on this roller coaster up and down, up and down. Some days good, some days bad, but you put it all together and it's still nothing but religion. He came to give us a relationship. It's only when we understand our relationship and the nature of that relationship that we can now describe our walk with God in terms of love. If you remove love from the description of your relationship with God, here's what you're left with. I go to church. I read my Bible. I pray some. I give a little bit of money. And I try to be a good moral person. That is not relationship. That is religion. That is a spiritual arrangement. But when love defines the relationship and someone says, tell me about your relationship with God, what does that mean? You can say, I don't even know where to start on this. All I know is he's my God. He is my refuge. He is my Lord and my Savior. All I know is he came for me when nobody else wanted me. He forgave me when nothing would call him to forgive me. He has given me eternal life. He makes me feel safe and secure. He's given me a new identity and new hope and new joy and a new family. He has poured into me more than I can ever describe. I get a chance to read his word to get to know him. In prayer, I can share my heart and he's speaks into mine. I get a chance to follow him and faithfully serve him, not because religion demands it, but because I love him with all of my heart. And the only reason that happened is because he first loved us. That's why religion can never compare with relationship. But there's so many Christians that have just settled for same old, same old. Let's deal with the duties and forget the delight. Let's just try our best to be a better person tomorrow. When he's saying, apart from me, you would never even be in this place right now. So, I've shared a lot this morning. But here's the two foundational truths that you can build a lifetime on. With the nature of your relationship with God. Key truth number one. The nature of the relationship determines our conduct within the relationship. Different relational contexts are defined by different relational parameters. So a boss-employee relationship is defined by work. A husband-wife relationship is defined by marriage. A Jesus-disciple relationship is defined by love. Takes us to our key truth number two. Our relationship with God is defined by love and made possible only by the righteousness of Christ. 
That truth helps us understand how we're to act in the relationship. Because of the nature of the relationship, you are now free to love him. You are free to know him deeply. You are free from performance-based acceptance. You are free from the monotony of duty without delight. You are free to love him with all of your heart, all of your mind, all your soul, and all of your strength. You are free to draw closer than you ever felt like you could. You are free to stay longer than it even seems like it is right. You are free to worship deeply, not because of what you did, but because he said, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. We're going to close out the service this morning in a way to help drive that point home. We're closing out with communion because there is no better place to remember the love of God for us than to see what he has done as we celebrate communion. But here's what I want to do. I want to reread a text to you that I read a few moments ago. 1 Peter 3.18. I want you to reflect on this as you're preparing your heart for communion. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Why? Because the sin barrier had to be dealt with. The righteous being Jesus for the unrighteous who are us. That he might bring us to God. Because it is only when the sin barrier is dealt with that we can have access to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In communion, we remember the incredible love that God has bestowed upon us. And we also remember that the nature of our relationship changed. Prior to Christ, the nature was defined by wrath because our sin separated us from God. In Christ, the nature is defined by love because of the righteousness of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask as we close out the service, that God, you would give us incredible, incredible clarity to remember what the nature of this relationship is all about. May our heart be pulled towards you in this. May we stop trying to do it in our own strength and simply rest in the joy that is knowing you. God, we know that it's not rest and do nothing. It is as we rest and get to know you, and as we know you, we love you more, that you live your life more through us. God, I pray that people are set free. In Jesus' name, amen.